what can I do while I'm just home with my son until he goes to school? And I thought, well, you know, I could do more photography and I can do these kinds of things. And that's what kind of led me to this path to think it doesn't hurt to try filmmaking because I can just try it for a couple of years and I can go back to work once my son's ready for school. Fair so enough. it wasn't scary. You know, it wasn't like I had to leave a career really to, to switch. <laughs> I have been looking forward to chatting with you for, for so long. I did watch your documentary. It is quite impactful. What, um, what a meaningful, interesting, and yet depressing career or specific <laughs> project, I guess, not the whole career, but you know, how did you, how did you stumble across the criminal justice issues in our country and make that into a, a passion of yours, it seems? Yeah, my first introduction to it all was when I was like, I don't even know, 19 years old or something like that. I read Reuben Carter's book, The 16th Round. If you haven't read it, I so highly recommend it. Um, but it was the book that that movie, The Hurricane, was based on, that Denzel Washington movie. Did you ever watch that? No, I don't think so. Oh, okay. it's a great movie. And Bob Dylan did a song called Hurricane, based on, also based on Reuben Carter's story. So anyways, when I was 19, I read that book and I watched the movie and I, could, I was like beside myself. It was my first introduction to anything related to wrongful convictions. And up until then, like most people, I believed that law enforcement is, you know, accurate and there to help you and is never the bad guy kind of thing. And so it was really eye-opening for me. I was like, like this happens? I, I had no idea. And so it always stayed in the back of my head forever. For years, I got fascinated with true crime documentaries. I always uh, felt really, you know, really bad for the people who were involved in these kinds of wrongful conviction you know, situations who were wrongfully incarcerated. But I didn't know what I could do, like being one person other than donating some money or some time. What can you really do when you like are faced with such a huge problem, like a world problem? There's nothing. I felt like there's nothing I could do. And then in 2014, Serial came out and I listened to Serial and like half the world, I was totally captivated with the storytelling. And um, at the end of it, I was like, you know, that was a fascinating story and so well told. But there's a real kid sitting in prison who's not even a kid anymore and this is his real life you know what what what's up with him how is he doing and so I just did some research online I read some court documents and I ended up writing to Adnan's family to ask Adnan is the subject of serial if you didn't listen to that podcast I ended up writing to his family to see how I could help and they didn't write me back right away I'm sure they were inundated and so I planned a fundraiser for Adnan in New York City a um, in-person fundraiser to raise some money for his legal wow. defense fund and that was my initial kind of introduction to this whole world and I loved doing that fundraiser so much I wanted to do more and that was kind of the first steps one of the things that I've one of the, the parts of your job that I imagine is quite challenging is getting access to your subjects. Um, how did you approach that in this situation? So I, you're right. That's really tough. Um, it's especially tough because you, I only want to cover stories of people who are innocent. And how do I know who's innocent and not? So yeah. there's a whole challenging part wow. there. Um, but in this, my first movie, In Conviction, the way I went about it was very... Um, um, 
it kind of came about naturally. When I did the fundraiser for Adnan in New York, a girlfriend of mine who I organized it with, and there's a funny side story about her I'll tell you in a minute, but uh, I organized it with her and she said we should have a speaker because neither of us are experts in wrongful convictions. And so she suggested that we have someone you know, we get someone else to speak. And I was like, absolutely. And then she says, you know, I met a guy at a party a while back and he has a very similar story to Adnan. He was 16 in high school and a girl at his high school was raped and murdered. And he ended up getting wrongfully convicted for that murder. And he spent 16 years in prison. And when he got out, I met him at a party. And would you want to meet him? And I was like, Absolutely, because I didn't know anybody in real life who had right. been through this. And so that was Jeff. I got introduced to Jeff, um, Jeff Deskovic, and he ended up being the speaker For at my event. For those listening, that's the subject of her documentary. Yes, thank you. <laughs> and Jeff ended up being the speaker at our fundraiser, and that's how I met him. And then over the next uh, three, four, five years, Jeff and I stayed in touch just here and there. I actually met up with him for coffee a couple of times to pick his brain because I was like, as someone who's lived through this, what can somebody who's not a lawyer, who didn't have a podcast, you know, just, just an everyday person like me, what can I do to help people that are in the scenario, in the situation that you were in? And he was really helpful. He really helped me brainstorm. And, you know, of course he said, go to law school. And I was like, I don't want to go to law school. <laughs> and uh, that's how I met Jeff. So that's how I got the first subject of my film. And um, now I'm actually in that exact process where I'm trying to figure out whose story I'm going to tell next. Yeah. I mean, I, I see these people on other podcasts that have been in, um, involved in projects like this, like on Joe Rogan's podcast, they did a, they've done a few episodes on people with wrongful convictions. And it's just such a gut-wrenching set of stories, you know, all of them, including Jeff's. They're just brutal. Um, the um, Did you already know when you had met him that you wanted to pursue documentary filmmaking as your career or did that come about as a result of the answer to the question how can I help uh, yeah I had no idea that I was going to go into filmmaking it was I met him back in 2014 and I didn't start making the film till 2019 and so in those five years I was just wondering what is it that I can do that would really help and through the fundraiser I did for Adnan, I became friends with his family and they're the most wonderful, caring, nicest people. There's no doubt in my mind that Adnan is 100% innocent, um, not only based on uh, hearing him speak, but also just based on everyone he's surrounded by. They're just the kindest people. And uh, so I became friends with them. And so years later, when Adnan got a post-conviction hearing granted, I went to the post-conviction hearing in Baltimore with his family and as I was sitting in the courtroom and after the court um, case every evening we went to dinner, there was a camera crew filming and the family ended up telling us, you know, it's not um, public knowledge yet so don't say anything but this is the crew for HBO and they're making an HBO documentary called The Case Against Adnan Syed. And, um, so I, being completely naive and knowing nothing about filmmaking, I had a 20-year background in photography, so I knew my way around a camera, but I had zero experience in filmmaking. I saw these three people who happened to be there. It was like a cameraman, a producer, and maybe a third person. Might have just been two people. And I, just a light bulb went off. I was like, this is what I can do. I can make films. I love interviewing people. I love being behind a camera and films reach a broader audience. And that's what I want to do is I want to help the cause and reach a broader audience. This is the answer. 
And so I promptly went home and told my husband, you know, I want to make films. And he was like, are you crazy? Like people don't just start making movies at 40 and have any kind of success in this industry. It's a tough <laughs> industry to break into. And, you know, you don't, you can't just start at 40. And, um, you know, we talked about it. We thought, well, it doesn't hurt to try. And if nothing else, it'll be a hobby. You know, it just doesn't hurt to ever learn new skills and go to school. And so I enrolled into New York Film Academy and I took a documentary filmmaking workshop. And I, when I entered that workshop, I knew what I wanted. I knew I wanted to make films about wrongful conviction. So every assignment we got in school, I geared it towards shots that would relate to wrongful convictions or police misconduct and things like that so that I could start a library of footage for myself that I could eventually use. And within a couple of weeks of being in New York Film Academy, I reached out to Jeff and I said, hey, I have to do an interview um, assignment. And uh, I didn't even say it to him like an interview assignment. I knew I had to do an interview assignment for school. I said, I want to film a documentary. Would you be the subject of my documentary? And he That's said, <laughs> and he said, yes. And so I started filming him while I was in school and I did all of my projects on Jeff. So by the time I finished school, I had hours and hours of interview footage with Jeff and then other foot B-roll and whatnot I had shot. And that is how um, I started. And then I, when I graduated um, from that workshop, I just kept working on the film. Wow. So you let the, the natural momentum of being in school propel you into the, into like your real, into the career. You kind of like force one to feed into the other there. That's, that's pretty creative. I did. Even some of the assignments. I didn't get a great grade on because I was fitting a square into a circle. Like the assignment was A, <laughs> but I was like, no, I'm definitely shooting the police. Like I'm definitely shooting like the, the uh, uh, police station because I need those shots. So I was like, I'm just going to shoot it and hope for the best grade, but I'm going to shoot what I want to shoot because my goal wasn't, you know, to get a good grade in school. My goal was to make this film. And I knew that from day one. One of, or one of my sisters just graduated from uh, documentary school as well. Um, which, spoiler alert, she gave me some of the questions I'm going to ask you at some point. But uh, <laughs> <That's awesome>. <laughs> <laughs> what um, it is a tough industry, right? Like I've, it is it is quite challenging. How have you only having started in 2019? You're already selling your documentary on Amazon, and you've won all these awards, and you've killed it. How? What do you attribute that that success to? You know, obviously you're still still early in it, but you've had some pretty significant achievements. Uh, you know, a few things. One, going to New York Film Academy was such the right decision. And I d did some real research to see where I would go. And to be totally honest, I was a little iffy on the school before I enrolled. Um, but there was only a few schools that had a program starting, you know, fairly up quickly at the time I was looking. And um, and so many things were involved. How long the course was. I had a one-year-old at home, so I, I couldn't just, mm. you know, go to school for four years. It just wasn't an option. And so it really fit the bill. And I was a little, uh, a little skeptical going in, but when I got there, it was, I can attribute that for sure as one aspect of why it was successful because why? the, the professors there, like my first class I sat in on was with Claudia and she was the direct, the DP on the Ruth Bader Ginsburg documentary. And she's a professor wow. at New York Film Academy. And then I never took one of his classes, but just to give you the, the, an idea, um, I think Bill is a professor there and he is 
he worked on the Free Solo documentary. The, wow. The, yeah. And so the caliber of instructors there was like second to none. And so I learned from them and I took this crash course from these types of people. And so that, you know, there's just, there's, it's invaluable. There's no words to explain how, how wonderful that was because when I was working on my short and I was editing it, editing it in school, they were the ones watching it saying, ah, you know, you got to keep this in mind. And if I were you, I would cut this and I would think about this and they would really guide you. And so that was huge. And then secondly, Jeff's story is just so compelling. I mean, what Jeff has done with his life, considering how, where he started and where he is now is just such a compelling story. So that's, I'm getting chills just thinking about it. That's yeah, crazy. right? It's crazy. And it's so interesting if you're interested at all in like human psychology, which I really am. Just Jeff's story and his personality and everything is fascinating to me. And then third, um, you know, I'm just a very type A and black and white person. And I, when I want to do something, I get obsessed with it and I, I just go after it. <laughs> and so I never, I, you know, I never let it go. Like the minute I decided I was doing this, I was just like at a hundred percent all the time on it. So I think a combination of, you know, some good luck, some good teachers, some hard work. <laughs> that seems like a magic formula. I'm, uh, I was, I'm surprised to hear you say such great things about your, um, your, your school. Like most of the people that I interview, say that their education was a waste of time and that everything that they learned was, was on the, was on their own. Um, do you think that that's something that most documentaries, like what I'm trying to distill here is like, are most documentary programs good? Like, is it, is it a good route to success to enroll in documentary school or do you recommend kind of the whole DIY figure it out as you go YouTube tutorials kind of thing? Is that even you know, viable in this industry? For me, I, I mean, both are good, I think. Both are good because okay. I've done a lot of DIY after finishing school. The things I didn't learn, I did through YouTube and just hands-on experience. But what I will say is that what really worked for me, and I have nothing but great things to say about New York Film Academy, but what I noticed is there was other students in my same program who got nothing out of it. And you could tell mm. by with their final films. And so it is what you make of it. So I went there, you know, as a sponge, I took every extracurricular class. I was there till 10 p.m. at night for all the night courses that were all optional. They had like, it was like 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. were the classes, but then there was a 7 to 10 class that you could take. It was optional. I mean, I was there for all of it. And um, I really went there with a goal. So I was working on my documentary while I was there. So the feedback was invaluable. Now, if I was there just working on assignments and they were giving me feedback on little tiny assignments that didn't matter to me, maybe I wouldn't have gotten yeah. as much out of it. So I think it's really A, what you make it, and then B, um, network, you know, it's about who you know. So like I've kept in touch with all those people after I finished. And Especially I given the top caliber people you were dealing with, that, that's really yes. smart. Yes, yes, yes. But I think I, think I would recommend um, the workshop for sure because it was a six-week crash course. So I, there's no way I could have learned all that in six weeks on my own. That's what was great about it. One of the other things I think about when I think about your industry is like expensive. Producing something like major like that is, is a lot of people, a lot of equipment, a lot of access. Um, how do you go about getting funding for something like that? So, you know, the great thing about um, documentaries, when you talk about the industry, yes, it's so, so expensive. The great thing about documentaries is that it can be scrappy. And mine was like, we self-funded it, my husband and I ourselves. Wow. And um, when you go to school and you start filming it in school, you have access, 
to all their equipment for free. So like think you about really that. Knows that. <laughs> yeah, and when you think about that, I mean the funny thing is I luckily had already owned the same equipment because I had done camera work for 20 years. Oh, yeah, so yeah, yeah. so that was an expense that I didn't have to um, bear. But when I was looking at going into school and I was looking at the cost of tuition, I looked at the cost of tuition versus the cost of renting equipment and hiring PAs. And I was like, <laughs> oh, I'm definitely going to pay the tuition because you get students to work with you. You get all the equipment you get access to. So you just got to be, you know, scrappy and smart about it. When you were in school, like, Simul like doing this project as your like coursework, fitting that round peg in the square hole or whichever yeah. word it is. When you were doing that and you had students working with you, were they just like, were they on board with the fact that you were doing this as like your vocation, like this specific project? Or did they think they were doing like school assignments that you were just taking way more seriously? <laughs> I think a little bit of column A and a little bit of column B. The funny thing is, <laughs> <laughs> I think my first assignment or so uh, was weird because they were probably like, why is she taking this so seriously? And like, who cares? And like, <laughs> the lighting's not right, you know, and stuff. Mm -hmm. But then by the second, third and fourth assignment, the, the crew I worked with on my second assignment, we just got along so well and the work was impeccable. I and mean, a lot of the shots you see in that doc were shot, were shot by students in New York Film Academy. And some of those wow. shots I, I are my favorite shots and better than stuff I've shot. And so once I, I rounded my second assignment when I got this one crew of three people together and they were so fantastic, we just, the three of us just made a pact, like we're gonna do every assignment together. We're not changing our group. We're not gonna work with anyone else. We're just gonna stay for the rest of the course together. And so yeah. they ended up working on my film the whole way through and they were super excited that it was a film that was like, you know, the same film every week and that we were going to submit it to festivals and all that. And then I've got to celebrate the success with them afterwards because they have the credits on the film. And, and so it's been, it was really awesome. But in the beginning, they were definitely That's like, so cool. what is happening with this girl? <laughs> That's so cool. I love that picture. Um, so how much of it was done when you graduated? Like 80% of it. Okay. So then what was the process like from, to go from that 80% to Amazon reaching out or you reaching out to Amazon or like what, how did that happen? You know, what's so funny about that, that wouldn't have even happened had it not been for the pandemic. And when the pandemic hit, I, I was so bummed because we had, first of all, in my very last couple days at school, um, one of the instructors who ended up working on my film, he's so fantastic and he's such a good friend now. He said he watched it in an editing class and he was like, he, uh, and I showed it to him for feedback as to what I should change. And he watched it and it was only eight minutes long or 10 minutes long at the time. He watched it and he took it. I'll never forget. He took his headphones off and he was like, wow, he's like, you just got to submit that to festivals. And I was like, what? Cause I was thinking, you know, he's going to give me a whole slew of notes to like what to change and stuff. And he was like, you got to submit this. And I was like, what? I've never been to a film festival. I don't even know how to submit something to a film festival. No idea. And we had an extracurricular course in the evening that was all about how to submit to film festivals. So I promptly was like, okay, sign up for this thing in the evening. And I signed up and they taught us how to submit. And I submitted it. I just started submitting it because he said so. And he had a film at the time that was in the festival circuit that had done really well. So I really took his opinion as sure. one that mattered. And so I submitted it, knew nothing about film festivals, the industry, nothing. I only learned after, so within 30 days, we got accepted into three festivals. And I was shocked, like beside oh my myself gosh. shocked, because I didn't think 
that was even an option. I thought I would, you know, just try and I, I had said to my husband, I think, like, there's no harm in trying. If I don't enter them, I'll never get in. If I enter them, I'll probably never get in. So <laughs> may as well just enter them. And we got into three. And then I ended up, I started researching and I read that less than 1% of submissions get accepted into festivals. And when I read that statistic, one, I was so excited and so thankful that we made that cut. Secondly, I was like, thank God I didn't read this in advance because I would have never submitted my film because I would have been too deterred and too scared. And so that's how, that's how that started. My film was going to have a theatrical release in New York at the Anthology Film Archives. And two weeks before the actual date, the pandemic hit, everything got shut down. Oh. The theaters got shut down. Our release got canceled. And I was so bummed. I was like, what are the chances that you change careers at 40, you somehow miraculously have success in this crazy industry, your film gets into like 10 festivals, you get your theatrical release in New York City and Los Angeles. I had one in LA, one in New York. I was like, I'm living a dream. And then all of it was just like, nope, nothing. No one's gonna see it. Like no theatrical release, no theaters. I was so, I was feeling bad for myself. And you know, I felt bad for myself for about a day. And then I was like, what am I gonna do with my time? And what am I gonna do now that we can't go anywhere and we can't do anything? And I started noticing that a lot of established filmmakers, like really, you know, really established people in the industry started doing a bunch of Zoom calls. They all, they were all type A personalities. None of them wanted to sit at home. And they started doing little like workshops and talks. And so I joined, you're gonna think I'm crazy. I think I did 45 workshops in 60 days at the very beginning of the pandemic. I do think you're crazy. That's a Yeah, lot of I signed up for all of them. <laughs> I just signed up for all of them. I was like, I'm gonna learn everything I can learn from these people who have already done it, you know, like they've done it. Yeah. And uh, so, I, so I did these and that's where I learned from another filmmaker who on one of their courses taught how to get your documentary onto Amazon. And I followed the steps they said exactly. And that's how I got the documentary onto Amazon. And it was, it wouldn't have happened if it hadn't been for the pandemic because I didn't know anything about doing that. That is fascinating. So now, so now you're working on creating a longer version of it, correct? Yeah, a feature length, like an hour and a half version of Jeff's story. Wow, and it's all about him. There's no other uh, wrongful convictions in, in the film? So I don't want to go give away the ending, but because of okay, the work okay. that Jeff does, there will be a few others mentioned, but it is fully Jeff's story. It's all related to Jeff. Uh, the difference is that the, the short really focuses on reintegration into society and like how does an innocent person deal mm -hmm. with a wrongful conviction and then once they're released, what do they do and where do they go? What, they don't have money. They don't, they've been you know, extracted from society for, for Jeff almost two decades. Just got um, so, goosebumps again. <laughs> oh, it's, it's crazy, right? It's, it's crazy. This is why I'm so passionate about the topic because I just can't even fathom. Can you imagine if that happened to you? I, I no. don't even know what I, I would. First of all, I'd be angry. Second of all, I don't even know if I would live. But um, anyways, so the feature length doc really goes into much more detail into what happened to cause this situation and what is wrong with our justice system that caused this to happen to Jeff. And like in Jeff's case, for example, there was DNA because Angela, the girl who was murdered, was raped. And so there was semen. And Jeff tried to get that DNA tested for years and he was denied. And it's like, why would the justice system deny DNA testing when it's sitting right there in front of you and it could identify somebody? It's just bizarre. So we touch on a lot of those things like false confessions and DNA and 
how the justice system works and how it failed Jeff. Oh man, that's just terrible. I've heard yeah, I've heard terrible. that before. How like the DNA testing is is part of the problem, um, and the access to DNA testing specifically. Um, yes, I've heard stuff. I've heard. I'm really interested to hear your your story uh, or the story you're producing. Yeah. Um, one of the questions I was talking to my sister about this that she brought up, which is really interesting. This is a super emotional subject. Even listening to it is emotional, yeah. but I imagine working on it is also at times really tough. Do you find it's best to detach from it or is it best to use that as like creative fuel? Like how do you handle like the emotions of working on something this heavy? Uh, you know, oddly, I found it very motivating because I felt like finally there's something I can do to help this cause. So I didn't feel detached from it and definitely was sad. A lot of times I remember uh, the first three times when I was editing the film, the first three times I saw, I watched Jeff's graduation ceremony. I cried it just sitting in front of my computer editing. I, it made me cry because it's just so sad. It's happy and sad, but it's just so sad. Um, so definitely it's emotional, but I don't detach from it at all. I find it super motivating. And when I get really good interviews with like nuggets of like, you know, sound bites and stuff that are just perfect, it just gets me so excited that I, I don't really have to detach from it. Although I will tell you a kind of funny thing is that when I had to um, <laughs> work on the soundtrack for the film and I had so much music, some submitted to me, some that I you know, reached out to people and stuff. And I always work, I start my work day at 10 p.m. after my son goes to bed and I work till 3 a.m. So like that's my normal <laughs> work day. <laughs> so I'm always, I was sitting there in my apartment pitch black at like 1 a.m., you know, with headphones on and like listen, going through all the music and the music is so scary. It adds so much to the film, but it's also so creepy. And I was just mm -hmm. listening to the music and I would scare the crap out of myself. And I would like sh shut my computer down be like, I'm gonna have to work on this tomorrow when there's daylight because this is way too terrifying for me to work on right now. <laughs> so that was the only time I'd have to kind of detach and be like okay now I feel like someone's gonna break into my house and now I'm scared so I'm gonna stop stop working on my film. <laughs> this hustle that you're describing like working from 10 to 3 your just overall tenacity is pretty incredible. Um, your career change at 40 is that is that why you work so hard? Like, how did how did that come about? Like, how did you go? First of all, I don't, I don't actually know what were you doing beforehand, and how did you decide that you needed to make a career change? So beforehand, I had a twenty year career in the fashion industry, which I loved. Oh, uh, is that my, Studio Fifteen? Uh, yeah, and prior to Studio Fifteen, that's my own company that I launched. Oh, okay. um, six, seven years ago. But prior to that, I worked for other uh, major brands um, at their corporate offices doing business operations and business development. Um, and I did that for 20 years. And in my 20s, I loved it. I thought it was so fun. I was like, I'm getting paid to work with clothing and I get to go to fashion shows. Like I thought I was living the life. And then in my 30s, it just, I realized it wasn't fulfilling. And I didn't, I hate to say, but like all the people that I was surrounded by and I thought it was really mm -hmm. frivolous and, and not a good use of my time. As far as the work ethic, I've always been a crazy, crazy worker. Like I would work even back then, I would sometimes be working till 2 a.m. And yeah. and so it, it kind of happened naturally. I had my son and so I took time off. So I was a stay at home mom for the first. Well, I went to school when he was a year. So it was you know about a year that I'd been at home and I'm not somebody who can just sit at home. I'm just not. And I was like, what else can I do? And because I had taken a break from my job, I already I didn't have to quit. 
because that would have been a harder decision. I had already mm -hmm. quit. And so I was like, what can I do while I'm just home with my son until he goes to school? And I thought, well, you know, I could do more photography and I can do these kinds of things. And that's what kind of led me to this path to think it doesn't hurt to try filmmaking because I can just try it for a couple of years and I can go back to work once my son's ready for school. Fair so enough. it wasn't scary. You know, it wasn't like I had to leave a career really to, to switch. So, so that's uh, how I ended up, ended up there. 30 minutes into a conversation with you and I can tell that there was no chance it ended up being a hobby for you. <laughs> <laughs> that does no. not seem like a plausible outcome. <laughs> yes, I am not going back to work. Definitely, I'm just going to do this. That is 100% true. I love so, it so much. What about, where does, where does the creation of Studio 15 fall into your timeline, life metrics, all that? So I still have Studio 15. I still do it, but it's more like a side hustle. I do it more okay. as a hobby now. I do it for fun. Um, yeah, I just do it when I can. And it's nice because even before I had my son, it's like fully automated, you know, like we have a distribution center that ships the clothes and whatnot. So it doesn't require that much of my time. I cool. just am no longer, you know, designing for it on a regular basis and launching new lines and just do it as f for fun when I feel like it. Sweet. Yeah. Nice. So I kind of, I kind of flipped. I used to be doing that full time. And, and honestly, it was coming to a time where I was like, this is not, this is not something I want to do long term. And so it just kind of worked out. Interesting. So then back to the documentary side. So what does it look like taking something that you've already done, um, a shorter version of it, making a longer version? Obviously, you're approaching it from a different angle now. But are you going back and do you have to get a ton of new material? Are you repurposing old material mostly? Are you working with, I don't know at what phase someone like Amazon or Netflix or whoever would sponsor something like this gets involved. Talk to me about the process. Yeah, so majority of what you see in the short is all going to be in the feature length. So that yeah. 20 minutes will, it won't be exactly how you see it. It'll be edited differently, but most of that is going to be, most if not all of that is in the feature. Uh, but then we did, we shot a lot more, um, a lot more because we talked to uh, the lawyers at the Innocence Project who were involved in Jeff's release. Uh, I talked to Jeff's mom and family members and any uh, lots of other people who were involved in Jeff's life at the time when this occurred. I'm hoping, um, hoping to reach out to, I know they'll probably say no, but I'm hoping to reach out to the detectives who got a false confession out of Jeff. I don't think they'll talk to me, but I'm going to try to talk to them and I'm hoping they will. Um, you know, when, when the DNA was, uh, DNA testing was denied, that was, um, Janine Pirro. She was the DA at the time in Westchester and she's the one who said no, that they can't test it. So I reached out to her. She, she won't talk to me. And so whoever I can talk to, I've been interviewing. So we have got a lot of new content, obviously, to make the hour and a half version. And, um, and then we're already in talks with a couple of, of networks um, to see if they're interested in purchasing it. So now the film's in post-production. So we're almost done filming. We have two wow. shoots left. And the two shoots got delayed because of COVID. One was inside a prison and all the prisons got shut down. And so no one's allowed in. So we couldn't do that shoot. So I'm waiting till they allow us to do that. And the second one was with a woman who was instrumental in getting Jeff out and she's in Colorado. And of course there was no flights or flying. So that got mm. postponed. So once I get those two shoots done, filming will be complete. But since I was only shy two shoots during COVID, I just worked on the editing process. So now we have a almost finished film with gaps and holes where we need to kind of do these shoots and fill in what's left. So I'm hoping it'll be done by the end of this year and then we can get some distribution for it. And we've been in talks, like I said, with a couple of networks. I'm hoping to get it somewhere, somewhere other than Amazon this time. 
That's cool. So what is that process like of talking to these networks as much as you can say? You don't have to name which ones you're working with, but I'm just curious what it feels like and what it is like. You know, it's it's so bizarre and we could almost talk about that for a whole hour on its own because it is a complete crapshoot. There is no like standardized way. Oh, I don't want to say no, but there isn't one standardized way to get your film to a network. You can either work with a really good entertainment attorney who has who has contacts, or you can get a sales agent to sell your film for you. Or in some cases, you can get meetings yourself if you have the right con- contacts. And so there's no like straight path. And so that was one of my biggest challenges when I was trying to do this. And as I was in my 45 workshops with all these filmmakers, and I kept asking this question and people were always like, there is no answer, but I know this one person, I can put you in contact with them and I'm happy to help, but there's like no one straight path. So it's been a real, real challenge because I feel like there's so many indie filmmakers that might have a great film that nobody will ever see because if a sales agent won't take you on, then they're never going to show anyone your film. If you don't know a great entertainment attorney that has a contact at Netflix, then Netflix is never going to see your film. And so it's really, really tough. That's weird. I wonder why they set it up like that. Like why yeah. wouldn't they, isn't for these businesses that their, their business model is to have great content. Why wouldn't they have great channels for that? You know, from the business side of it, it's so weird because Netflix and even Amazon, they're becoming their own production houses, right? Like Netflix is Mm -hmm. making their own shows. So they don't want to give the money to, it seems, to somebody else. They don't want to buy it from you. They want to make their own. So it's getting harder and harder for other people to make films because like the huge networks like, you know, Netflix... Mm -hmm the huge streaming platforms have kind of taken over and now they're making their own content. And so it's getting really, really tough. So when they make their own content, sorry, this is a dumb question. When they make their own content, do they work with outside like filmmakers like yourself or or would they have someone in-house to to do it for them? They have mostly in-house, I believe. And I'm no, no expert in this area, but it seems that way. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. So like I mentioned to you, my sister just graduated from documentary school and she's now trying to like venture into the world of, of your world, really. Um, what brotherly advice can I give her via power of transit? <laughs> oh, man. Well, one, please feel free to put her in contact with me. I would be more than happy to, you know, okay. stay in touch with her. Absolutely. The best advice that I got that I can share with you was from the director of the documentary program at New York Film Academy. And she said, when you're editing a film... She said, look at every single scene that you're editing and treat it like your favorite party guest, she said. Your favorite party guest arrives fashionably late and leaves on time and doesn't stay longer than they're welcome. (laughs) And what she said she meant by that is that when you're watching your clips, right, you interview someone, there's going to be long sentences and the ums and ahs and all kinds of information. And because you're making the film, it's all going to seem interesting to you. You chose the subject. It's your film. You recorded it. But she said, think of it from the viewer's perspective. Anything that someone is saying leading up to the main point you're trying to make needs to be cut out. She's like, you're going to lose audience interest if you leave all that, you know, stuff they're talking about before the main point you never want to include that and then once they've made the point that you're trying to emphasize you need to cut the scene there you don't keep anything extra they've said after because you're going to lose the emphasis on that point you're trying to make and so that was so interesting to me because i rewatched my film when i edited it 
probably 40, 50 times, and I watched every scene for that. And I realized that they said to do this down to if somebody uses the word and twice and they don't need it. Like if I was to say, you know, I love filmmaking because I love being behind the camera and I love interviewing people and I love lighting sets. I don't need all of those ands. And they would have us go in and even cut that like half of a second of that word and wow. out. Um, and so it was like that level of detail. And just that analogy she used kind of always just stuck with me it's for some reason. And it was a great tip for editing. And the second piece of advice that I got that was great is that um, also from school was that the equipment doesn't really matter. And this isn't entirely true because it does matter if you want to get onto Netflix or somewhere. But more important than getting expensive equipment or expensive mics is to focus on the actual story and, and the guts of what you're telling. And if you have, this is what they told me when I asked, because I had asked the question about what equipment do I need to buy? And they were like, don't even think about that. They're like, if your film is so good, if your storytelling is so good, Every network says you have to use this camera. Actually, Netflix even has a list of requirements on their website that if you're making a film, it has to be with one of these 20 cameras. If it's not these 20 cameras, you can't submit it. And what's super interesting, what she said is, if your storytelling is so good, all those rules go out the window for you. They don't care that they have those huh. rec rec like prerequisites there, but they don't care if your story is that amazing. And the funny thing about that is, you, I see it all the time now on Netflix. Like there's a documentary called The Staircase on there. Have okay. you seen it? It's a it's no, another true crime. Yeah, anyways, it's it was it blew up uh, like a couple years ago or a year ago. And uh, if you watch it, the quality is almost unwatchable. <laughs> the camera is is horrible and the reason I learned it's horrible is because I guess The Staircase was made for TV like some 15 years ago. But it's such a fascinating story that Netflix bought it anyways, but it was filmed on cameras that are like 15, 20 years old. And so, of course, they don't meet any of the requirements of today. It was like probably a camcorder, you know, but they didn't care. They still bought it because the story is so compelling and it became one of the top documentaries on Netflix. And so she she used that example that like just focus on on the story. And um, we actually in school, which was crazy, we watched the movie Cartel Land. Have you seen that one? No, I haven't. You're going to judge me for how uneducated and how un... No, oh my God, are you kidding how me? How few things I've seen. <laughs> because of Netflix, there's 10 gazillion movies out there, so I don't judge you at all. <laughs> but Cartel Land, I would so recommend because it's a real... It's, these, it's this filmmaker and camera guy who actually went and hung out with the cartel. In, like, hung out with them. Like, somehow got them to let them do this. And all the filming is, like, them, like in these cars with these cartel guys it's just insane to just see just because it's a world we'll never see otherwise but we watched cartel land in school and we watched it in it was crazy it was hours and hours that we watched this and we watched it in like 30 second to one minute segments and then analyzed that segment and the next segment and the next segment and it was so crazy that they showed us how at the end of every scene they kind of get your hopes up and then the next scene they let you down and the next scene, they kind of get your hopes up and then they let you down. And then and it does this thing. And like that wave huh. of emotions is what gets people really invested in a film. So there's just so many little nuggets of information that we're wow, fascinated. Wow, you guys do torture us. That's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> would you ever, like, obviously you have a kid, so maybe it's different, right? But would you ever put yourself in a crazy situation like that? Like, how, can, can you empathize at all with those guys who make something like Cartel End? I mean, it's so fascinating, and I wish I had the guts, but I'm chicken. There is no way I would ever do that. 
No. I can't even imagine those people that, that do that kind of stuff. Or like reporters that go to third world nations that are like in war torn situations. Like crazy stuff. Oh yeah, I could never. I could never. I mean, those people are really brave and good for them. I'm actually relieved to hear you say that, so that's good. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't even listen to scary music in my own apartment <laughs> while making my film, Max. <laughs> I was gonna go there, but I didn't I stopped myself. <laughs> Yeah, but when you talk about getting access, getting access to the cartel, oh my goodness, that's absolutely nuts. That's yeah, absolutely nuts. you got to check that one out for sure. It seems though, like based on the advice that you've given, that you feel that this is an industry where your success is mostly predicated on your work product rather than other things. Or do you feel that it's a mix of both? Like, you know, you when I asked you at the beginning of this, if you thought your success was what your success was due to, you said, in summary, something to the effect of compelling story. Uh, great teachers and um, hard, hard work. work. Do you feel like the, because the advice you just gave was mostly content focused, do you feel like that is the, the most important part? You know, it's really funny. Content is definitely, I think, the top priority because that's your ticket, right? That's the only mm. thing that's going to open doors. But in this industry, the other thing that's very important is who you know. And if you don't have the context, mm. people might never see you know, this great film that you have. And that's been challenging for me because I went in here with zero contacts. I didn't know a, a single person in this industry, but uh, luckily I kind of used the time during the pandemic to fast track making some connections. Uh, yeah. So that was but, those workshops? Yeah, the workshops, exactly. Because it's just all people. You've got to connect with people, right? And, uh, and you got to also bring something to the table and offer them whatever you can so that they'll want to help you, right? It's like a... Yeah, so so it's just I've been trying to build that. I don't have the contacts in this industry, that's for sure. But uh, slowly and surely, I'm getting there. The short was really my uh, my uh, calling card to kind of try and build yeah, the that, contacts. That's smart. It's like it's like everything else, right? It's like content marketing for yourself, but you put it out as a product. It makes yes. a ton of sense. Yes, exactly, exactly. Um, I'm very interested in people's intersections of expertise and you have a very unique intersection of fashion plus documentary film. Is there any overlap there at all in the way that you think about those two things? Did one prepare you for the next? Um, was it just a straight jump ship and there's nothing that I can carry this with me? How do you think about that? You know, that is such a good question and no one's asked me that before. And the answer I've thought about before because there's such a huge intersection, which you would never think. Huh. But when I when I left the fashion industry and started filmmaking, as soon as my film was close to finished, towards the end of my time at New York Film Academy, when I took that course about submitting your film to festivals, that last kind of course that I took, um, it dawned on me how much how much overlap there is and what there's such an intersection because what we talked about in that course and what has really been one of the major at attributes to my success I think is that marketing the film is like 90% of the work and marketing is what I did in the fashion industry for 20 years and so everything from creating 
your poster, to your taglines, to your flyer, to just selling it. You have to sell it. And all I've, I've had a sales background, you know, like I've been in the sales business forever. And so you have to make a good film, but if you don't market that film, just forget about it. And so I had a good film, but I really had to do the marketing and the marketing. Um, I'm so thankful I had the, the experience I had because I was able to fast track the marketing of the film because I had 20 years of experience in doing PR and pitching myself to, you know, whether it be publications or newspapers or TV shows and stuff like that. And I had that background because I had done it for 20 years for other companies and for my own company. Interesting. So when you say that you had to sell it and you distinguish that from marketing, what, yeah. what did you mean by that? How did you have to sell it? Like what, what, are the, what kind of conversations did you have to have? Um, well, so th th I don't know. There's so many things. I mean, one, from a PR perspective, you have to position mm -hmm. yourself as like a, as an expert in this and a thought leader in this, you know, and in order to do that, you got to be able to speak to it. And in order to show that tangibly to, to the filmmakers, I'm sorry, to networks and stuff, you have to have been featured in publications and you have to have spoken about it, whether it's on TV or whatnot. And so that, that is what I did so that when you, it's so funny because I had a meeting with one, um, uh, I think it was a sales agent or a distributor, I can't remember. And he said, like, you know, you're a first time filmmaker and so nobody knows you. And every, everybody that comes to us wants to be a filmmaker, but not everyone has it in them to finish a film because it takes so much work. And he's like, the fact that you finished it says a lot, but we need to see where, where have you been featured. You have to bring where you've been featured in publications on TV to the table in a package with your film so we can see how much marketing you can do for us if we take your film. So they're gonna do some marketing for you, but they want you to come with the other 50% so they know they'll make money. Like you need to bring a new audience to them. And if you can't bring that, then they don't wanna see your film. And so that's why that marketing, and, and I guess the sales part is selling it to the sales agent or the distributor so that they wanna sure. take your film. And the marketing is what you need to bring with you as proof that you have some reach and that you have some, you know, you can, you can bring something to the table. So is, is the metric, is the success of that interaction, does that just give you like an accolade? Like, are you just, is that another thing that you can say you've accomplished or does it actually give you exposure or actually increase your visibility quite substantially? Both. Both okay. for sure. Yeah. Awesome. It sounds, sounds tenacious. Sounds like a, a <laughs> quite a battle you have to go through there. <laughs> <laughs> You know, it's so funny when um, I was uh, doing like our fall and summer lines for Studio 15 stuff, I, I would have to do all these pitches every few months, right, to publications and this, that and the other. And the fashion industry is so inundated and it's, it's hard to get press for fashion. And I was always so frustrated. I was always so frustrated. Like I was like, I sent out like a hundred pitches and nobody has gotten back to me or one person got back to me and they didn't follow through or they didn't, they did all the work and they didn't end up publishing it. I was always so frustrated. And the funny thing is, is with the film, and I'm sure it's because of subject matter and of course it's you know fashion is just clothes this is much more important um, but I've sent out I, I don't even know I think 80% of my pitches have gotten accepted and so I do the work wow. and and I see the fruits of that labor right away so it's so motivating completely opposite from what I saw in the fashion industry but also um, so awesome because it's the same experience I'm doing the same exact thing as far as sending out the pitch and what I'm saying and how I'm saying it. It's just, it didn't work there, but it works here. Oh my gosh. That's so cool. <laughs> it's so cool. 
Well, I promised you I would keep this under an hour, so I want to be respectful of your time. We're, we're getting right there. I'll let you go. Thank you so much for being on the show. It has been an absolute pleasure to interview you. Um, the work you're doing is so important. I, If you haven't seen the documentary, go check it out. Where can people find it? Do you have a yeah. way to find it? Yep, it's on Amazon. You can just search Conviction and my name, my full name, and it'll come right up. There are a couple other films with that name, so that's why I say you want to search my name or Jeffrey Deskovic's name along with it. Um, and if anybody wants to attend screenings as they're being rescheduled, because now that theaters are opening, we're finally able to reschedule all the theatrical releases awesome. that were canceled. Uh, that All that information is on my website. It's just geowertz.com. Awesome. And all that will be in the description of wherever you're watching this or listening to it. Gia, can't thank you enough. This has been so, so cool to speak with you after watching this documentary you made. And I'm, I'm a huge fan of your work. Please keep doing it. Um, not that you wouldn't anyways, but <laughs> you got a fan. I'm, I'm uh, so excited to have talked to you, Max. I've been looking forward to this for months and we'll definitely have to do it again. <laughs> we, we certainly will. We certainly will. All right. Take care. Okay. Bye.